0: Hi, this is Josh Seiden and you're listening to Radio Free Leader.
1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidburkuscom podcast podcast. podcast click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com you can also if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the united states just text the word radio free to 33444 We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkus.com slash podcast or text radio free, all one word to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do?
0: So uh, my name is Josh Seiden, and I am a a designer and a consultant. I work with uh, teams launching new digital products and services, and I am also an author. Most recently, of the new book *Sense and Respond*. So I want to dive into
1: the book, especially. But as as we talk about you, did you? I mean, your your background is in design. Is it graphic design, visual design? I know you've done a lot in user experience, et cetera, and that's led to a lot of interesting um, strategy work, even. But how did you get started?
0: Yeah. So the the interesting thing is, so I studied writing in school, um, and uh, hey, you I,
1: and me both. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, and then you know I discovered that the the the. Um, the career prospects for fiction writers uh, were slim. <laughs> you,
1: you and me both. Yeah, this is really lining up.
0: And so um, I started working. I was living in the Bay Area at the time, and I started working in the computer industry. And I became really interested in uh, sort of the question of, of how do you make great technology products? And I sort of stumbled into the world of user experience design and and uh, interaction design, and and so that's sort of been uh, that was the the that's been the main sort of the center of my career um, since uh, since I started doing that work in the early nineties, um, and then that's led to all kinds of other questions, uh, sort of bigger questions about how do you get teams together working together to make great technology products.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I feel like we're in. Um... We're in sort of a new era of design, and I, I attribute it to to kind of two folks for being the huge champions, the, the folks behind, like, your IDOs of the world, but also to the Rotman School and to Roger Martin for sort of elevating principles of design into a, a much better framework for innovation. I mean there like there was a time where design meant you take a, a spec from the senior leaders of a company and you just try and, and get all of their demands. And if you don't believe me, like Every single human living in the United States can pick up the remote control for their cable box yeah. and kind of understand the why this was a terrible method of design, right? It's the ultimate device that's designed by a committee of senior leaders who f- argue over importance. But we're in sort of a different era where we're actually kind of designers are able to sort of push back on leadership and say like, no, it's much more about empathy for the user. Um, sense and respond is obviously the the logical continuation of that idea, but but still, I think it's been amazing to see how how far we've come from where we were when it came to this.
0: Yeah, I think you know one of the one of the frustrations of the design community uh, for for many many years is that uh, in the design community, the idea that design is problem solving is completely uncontroversial. But outside of the design community, the you know the understanding of design is that d- design is about making it look good right and um so i think it was and and there there was just a great piece online uh one of the one of my favorite uh design writers is a guy named jared spool and, and he just wrote a terrific piece um about this phrase design thinking and you know in his in his formulation the the great success of the design thinking movement Uh, is that it was a way of framing design as problem solving for the non-design world, right? So this notion that you could use design to solve problems beyond, you know, what does it look like, or, you know, what color should it be, or should I use the, you know, what wallpaper should I pick for the room, right? Um, And so I think that that design thinking movement uh, really has a lot to do with this sort of uh, more evolved understanding of of what design can do as a process uh, across lots of domains and lots of types of problems.
1: Yeah, and and you know, like you said, the I mean, even just the word adding the word thinking to it as opposed to just saying that this is a process changes that mentality because, like you were saying, this difference between kind of the corporate America approach to design, which is oh, it's just about making it look nice, to the idea that it's a way of thinking, it's a, a way of solving problems, et cetera. that that leads to having to have empathy, that leads to having to have listen. And now, I mean, where we are uh, with your and Jeff's book, Sense and Respond, it it really involves high level listening and involvement from current users or even prospective users before there's even a
0: product. Yeah, yeah. what we talk about in um, in uh, in the book in Sense and Respond, um, we talk about this idea of having a continuous two-way conversation with the market, right? You know, uh, it, it, in, the, in the sort of industrial era of making products, you know, you did a little research or maybe you did a lot of research, right? And then you, you made a product and then you pushed it out to the market, uh, a, a new car, a, a, a new fast food, uh, you know, whatever the products were, you pushed it out, people used it. Um, and then you could go and you could do more research to to observe them using it and maybe make another product the next year. But in, in the world of, um, of digital products, um, a couple things have changed. One is that that feedback loop um, is much tighter. So in other words, we know what people are doing on Twitter uh, because we watch them tweet right? And we see that unfolding in real time. We can, uh, we, we watched the, the, um, this whole feature of the hashtag and the retweet and all of these things, those emerged from Twitter users. Twitter didn't invent those. Twitter users invented them and Twitter kind of watched those things come up and then they built them into the system. And so the, this sort of, the way companies can observe people using their products has changed. And then the material is, is different. Software is not something where, you know, you have to spin up a, a printing press or a production line and, you know, make a million copies, um, it, 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 you know, uh, in a factory somewhere. It's more like a, a big mound of clay where you're continuously adding and taking away bits of clay. And so the system is constantly under development. Um, to use an example that we like to talk about, you um, in 2012, we saw an engineer uh, fr- who works at Amazon stand up and announce that at Amazon, they push new code. In other words, some new bit of functionality gets pushed live to the production systems at Amazon every 11.6 seconds. Wow. Right. So so the idea that these systems are continue you know, people are continuing to use them. We are continuing to get information about how they use them. Our customers are giving us continuous feedback. And we have the ability to respond continuously. And that is a radical change in terms of the, the nature of the conversation, both literally conversation, but also that kind of metaphorical conversation, right? You do a thing, we observe it, we respond with a new feature. Um, it, it's a radical change in the rhythm of business. And it, it changes the way we manage, it changes the way we plan, it changes the way we budget, it changes the way we organize teams. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a huge shift that I think mainstream businesses are only now uh, starting to deal with. Um, yeah. Well, and,
1: you know, it's, it's one of those weird things where they're starting to deal with there is this opportunity um, that we've never had before, and yet there's still a tremendous amount of resistance to this idea. You know, it's it's almost like I don't know. It, it, it's I struggle to understand why organizations and senior leaders would be comfortable with the idea of of building out products and services completely hidden, and then launching them one day and hoping for a good reaction, as opposed to doing this. But there's still a lot of resistance.
0: I think it's just the it's it's the it, it's just muscle memory. You know, I mean, it, it's uh, it, you know we we tend to think about planning cycles that way um and i think the we're watching a sort of a you know we're watching that transformation come but it's a bottom up transformation right so you know uh, the um the the further you get from the means of production right the further you get from the engineering teams or the design teams or the product teams that are actually hands on with the ma- the material um the the less visible all of this new capability becomes. Um, and in large organizations, you know, I mean, so for example, I'm consulting with a with a a large um, a, a very large uh, company right now uh, whose procurement pl- process, and this is very typical, this isn't exceptional, the procurement process, in other words, the way they pay for new product development, requires a very detailed plan that specifies all of the activities you're going to do uh, uh, over the next year so that you can put this, you know, uh, this capital spending request in place. Hmm. And and so to be able to say to, to, to the people who hold the budget strings here, like, well, we don't actually know what features we're going to build over the next year, right? We don't know what this product's going to look like because we are going to learn our way forward, right? We're going to use sort of... Um, lean startup methods. I, I don't know how familiar you are or, or your listeners are with, with that sort of notion. But it, it, if we're going to figure this stuff out as we're going along, there's a great deal of uncertainty in our planning process. And yet that's in direct conflict with the, with the, the way that this organization has, has managed its capital spending for the last, you know, 50, 100 years yeah
1: let's so let's just for for those listeners that may not be familiar with Eric Rye's lean startup idea and the minimum viable product idea, let's let's take a second to unpack that because I think there's a lot in there too about why a senior leadership team would get a little uncomfortable.
0: Sure, sure. So um you know Eric says that um, eric 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 tells this great story about so he was cto of a of a a company in um, in Silicon Valley. And he and his team were working on a feature for their for their product that was very very difficult to engineer, um, and it took them eighteen months. And they built this thing, and it was a, they they were working on a, a, a sort of a three D uh, environment, and um, they built this thing out over eighteen months. And he said he felt so proud of his team for for climbing this engineering mountain. They built this amazing thing, and then. Um, they, uh, they shipped it, and uh, it was a huge customer failure. No one used it. No one wanted it. And uh, they couldn't salvage the effort. And so he, in trying to console himself in the sort of weeks following that, um, he, he said he, he remembers thinking, well, at least we learned something. And then sort of in the next breath, he thought, yeah, but did it have to take 18 months to learn that? couldn't (laughs) couldn't we have learned it more quickly right and and so the idea of lean startup is is particularly in software but in any startup there's a high high degree of uncertainty you're dealing with and so when you're planning a new venture whether that's a a company or a piece of software um, your mission needs to be to to pay down this risk to identify the risk Um, identify your riskiest assumptions and go after them early. And the interesting thing about this uh, sort of in the technology world is that you can go after these risks very quickly and easily by launching a very small version of your product. And that's where this notion of MVP or minimum viable product uh, comes from. it's It's a tiny, it's the smallest thing you can build to test whether you're right or wrong.
1: Hmm. So uh, this—I mean—this begs an interesting question, uh, and I'm curious to get your experience with it in dealing with uh, a lot of large firms. Is a lot of on the consumer side? If you—if you've never heard about these ideas, you're familiar with sort of Kickstarter or Indiegogo campaigns. You're familiar with the idea of startups, in particular, doing this minimum viable product idea. Is this the type of thing, though, that lends itself to, to sort of those startups who don't have... I mean, you mentioned the big division between engineers and senior leadership teams. When you when were a smaller organization and those are the same people, I, the adoption of this kind of continuous idea seems to be faster. Does size really create kind of a barrier to adopting this mindset?
0: Well, I think it does because I think size... Well, size... I don't think size itself uh, is um, is... What is it? What, what did I say? Uh, it's correlation, not causation, right? <laughs> um, that, that, you know, if you're a large company, chances are you got there um, by doing things over a long period of time in a traditional way, right? And so for many companies, certainly outside the software space, these large companies, they have methods that, uh, uh, methods and controls and management processes that come from, you know, our industrial company heritage, um, that involve these big annual plans and that assume that production is about making physical things. Um, and so in that case, size is kind of a predictor of, of obstacles. In, in, you know, To work this way, though, tends to mean that you're working in very small cycles, right? You're saying, well, let's make a little thing and see if we're right. And if we're right, we're going to make the next investment decision and the next investment decision, and the next investment decision. And so to work that way re- tends to require a kind of small cross-functional collaborative approach rather than these sort of larger stage gate processes with you know, you hand it from strategy to, to market research to design to engineering to QA, right? Like those kind of big siloed approaches tend to make it very difficult to work this way. Mm. Um,
1: so we have, maybe it's not size, but maybe it is the sort of culture that often comes down with, with size.
0: Yeah, I think so. Culture and kind of, um, you know, organizational uh, memory, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, totally. So, all right. So here's my question. So it seems like a lot of these ideas start, like you said, in engineering, in places that people have a sense that this is even possible what advice do you normally give to those folks on getting these ideas to scale, getting the culture to sort of change? Cuz it it obviously seems like it'd be easier if it could be a top-down approach and we get senior leadership on board, but it seems like that doesn't happen as often as the people who are closer to customers and closer to the product uh, realize that this needs to happen.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it, it it's sort of like any any change uh effort is is you have to have a, a demonstrated success, you know? So um, you know we often recommend to uh, to people who are trying to do this like get a get a team of of willing uh, co-conspirators together right? and, and just agree to work this way um, you probably need one sponsor who's willing to give you cover um, and that is usually enough to make a little progress and to demonstrate a win and um, and then you can use that to broaden your reach I mean in in Beyond that, then you're going to need some some senior, really senior support, some top down support. But I think the 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 way to do this is to start demonstrating wins.
1: Well, demonstrating wins, and I would I would assume um, going towards that correct collaboration culture sort of almost immediately, right? Because that seems like it needs to be in place. Um, I mean, even for the first one, but especially to go back to this resistance idea, um, it's it's one thing to demonstrate a win. It's a whole other thing to say like, and this win means that now we're all going to be here. If collaboration, especially across these different silos, is already there to some extent, yeah. then yeah, then we can kind of scale it faster. Am I, am I right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I, and, and I think it also, a lot of this depends on kind of uh, on what problem you're trying to solve, right? I mean, I think you know, uh, most big companies have teams that are sort of working in the, uh, the so-called horizon three stuff, the, the, the future stuff, the, the R&D, the innovation teams, um, you know, and those teams are a little more um, decoupled from the, the daily rhythms and the kind of strict rules. And so it's it's usually easier um, for those teams. There's fewer dependencies, certainly, on those teams. Um, to do this in organizations where there's a lot of dependency uh, on the work of, of one uh, of your team uh, can be very, very, it can, basically impossible, right? Because you've got to get all of the teams that depend on you to agree to a new set of rules. Jeffrey Moore wrote that, like, sort of in- innovation dies in large companies at the adolescent stage of efforts, right? So, you know, you have your business as usual, and big companies know how to do that. And then you have your kind of moonshot stuff, and big companies kind of know how to do that. But it's that, like, when you find a moonshot that shows promise, and it's no longer an infant, and you're in that kind of adolescent stage where you have to kind of integrate it back into the business, um, that's where that's where things start to get really challenging.
1: Exactly, I agree with you and I think it's a great insight. There's another piece to this too though, which is um, the culture piece not just on collaboration but on sort of continuous learning right And I feel like a lot of especially larger organizations but even even startups and smaller organizations in some capacity, tend to want to only solve problems for which they already know the answers, if that makes sense. And there's a there's a different approach to continuous learning that has to happen in order for this model to really, really thrive.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think that there's a um, you know, my 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 colleague uh, Jeff Gothelf with with whom I, I co-wrote the book, Jeff Jeff always talks about this kind of culture of humility, right? This sort of ability to lead with questions rather than answers, and this, the, the kind of bravery that it takes to say, this is a really important question for our company, and I don't know the answer. Like, for a leader to be able to say that and to say, like, hey, team, go get me the answer, um, that's, that's an amazing person to work for, you know? And uh, it's a it's a rare attribute, right? Because I think we we turn to our leaders for answers, and we expect our leaders to have answers. And I think many of the times people get to be leaders because they found good answers in the past, right? So being able to flip that and say, like, hey, you know what? This is actually like we need to orient ourselves around questions. Um, is um, that's a imp- really important first step?
1: Yeah, I mean the the traditional. <laughs> the traditional organizations you usually climbed up for having answers not necessarily having for having the best questions and then there's the then there's the whole idea i mean there's that corporate maxim of of what is it don't don't come to me with questions come to me with solutions well <laughs> actually this model depends on coming to you with customer questions right. and coming to you with ideas for improvement but not having the solutions
0: well we you know we we um we talk about one of the one of the sort of um important changes that i think um, teams can make to work this way is to move uh, from a conversation about uh, outputs. Um, we, we call it moving from managing by output versus managing by outcome, right? And so, managing by output, the manager comes to the team and says, "You know, make me a thing, right? Give me a report, make me a new a new page, um, make me a new um, shopping cart." on the checkout, uh, for, for an e-commerce site. Um, whereas, um, so that's, that's telling a team what to make. It's telling a team what the solution is. It's telling a team what the answer is. Managing by outcome says to the team, Hey team, you know, during our checkout process, our customers are abandoning at a high rate. We need to fix that. We need to change the rate. We need to get that abandoned rate down. And if we do that, we make more money and we win. Figure out how to, how to change that rate. And so what the manager is doing there is saying, this is the outcome we're trying to create. You guys go figure it out, right? And, and, and that is, you know, that's managing by question, right? It's saying like, there are a lot of answers to this. You guys figure out which is the best one, but this is the question you need to go, uh, you know? And so in that sense, that goes back to what you said of like, bring me the solution, indeed. You know, bring me the solution um, to this very specific problem. Hmm. yeah so
1: um the book the book again is uh, sense and respond how successful organizations listen to customers and create products. Um, it, it starts with that idea of, like you said, of outcomes based thinking, of continuous learning of of a culture of collaboration. I really feel like, you know, just as design thinking was a huge step in innovation, I really feel like this is the next big step. It's sort of the democratization, right, of a lot of innovation efforts if companies can keep in line with it. And if they can't, um, I, they won't be around. So there's that. So pick up the book, Sense and Respond, How Successful Organizations Listen to Customers and Create New Products Continuously. Josh, I've got a couple questions for you. Again, not, not solutions. I'm coming to you with questions. <laughs> um, we, we ask all of our guests the same five. The first one, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh,
0: what's the best advice? advice you know it's 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 interesting you say that and maybe it's just because we've been talking about it but it is um, uh, focus on the right question focus on hmm. the right question don't don't uh, don't dive into answering the question make sure you understand the question first and that it's the right question
1: hmm no there's a lot there um, what's an ideal workday look like for you it seems like you're doing a, a bit of everything so how do you juggle that what's what's the ideal workday look like
0: um, so i'm a I really enjoy collaboration. That is the, um, you know, my preferred style of work. And at the same time, I'm an introvert. <laughs> so I I need time alone. So, uh, you know, I like to spend uh, some time at my desk, uh, you know, engaged in something creative, whether that's writing or designing um, and just kind of headphones on focused. And then I like to spend time uh, with team, with clients, uh, collaborating with sleeves rolled up um, at the whiteboard, um, you know, making meaning. So,
1: hmm, I like that a lot. What are you reading right now? I'm, I'm particularly interested because you and I are fellow former writing majors.
0: Yeah. Um, so, I am reading. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm reading an industry primer uh, on a, an industry I can't talk about right now because it's for a, clim- uh, a, a, a client. Um, and I was just given a book uh, by a colleague of mine. I'm going to mangle the title called uh, What is Management? Um, uh, and he recommended it to me as sort of one of those uh, classic fundamental books uh, about, uh, about management. So.
1: Oh, cool. So, what do you? What would you say you believe that most people don't, or what do you believe that if you if you told most people they'd kind of look at you cross eyed?
0: Well, I, I I believe the the greatest food in the world is the New England fried clam roll.
1: Huh, see, I would go with the lobster roll, but that's fine. <laughs> that that is. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Are you are you so well you are you're in the bay area. Are you from New England originally or?
0: No, no no. I I'm a I'm a New Yorker. I I actually ah. Oh, wait a
1: minute. No, 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 no. So we're talking about two different types of clams here.
0: Uh yeah. We're talking about <laughs> uh, we're talking about fried well the New England clam roll fried Ipswich clams uh, from Massachusetts. That's- I know,
1: but as a New Yorker, are you allowed to endorse anything clam related from Massachusetts? That's, that's my question.
0: Clams, yes. It's the sports teams where we start to get. <laughs> <laughs> I love it.
1: Love it. Okay. All right. So, all, so all kidding aside, this is, this is, um, this is intriguing. The, the title of our show is Radio Free Leader. And so, the last question we ask all of our guests In your view, what makes someone a leader?
0: So I think uh, it's really important to have the confidence uh, in uh, the sort of two sides of the question, what is it that I really know? Um, and I think a, a good leader uh, knows what he or she knows and knows what he or she doesn't know and has the, the confidence to stick to, to bedrock uh, when they know something and the humility and courage to uh, admit when they don't know and um, and then have the, the skills to go get those answers, either from themselves or from their people.
1: Oh, I love that. And I mean, it's a, it's a, again, a perfect sort of segue into the sense and respond model and the idea that from a leadership perspective, especially stop with the don't bring me solutions things. (laughs) You want your people to bring you questions. You want your customers to bring you that. And you yourself want to be able to start. Um, asking that. So if, if that rings true, or even more important, if it doesn't, and hence we need to do even more convincing, I have a book for you to do that convincing. It's Sense and Respond, How Successful Organizations Listen to Customers and Create New Products Continuously. Josh, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader.
0: David, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been a real pleasure.